0: I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's past and its thought leadership through conversations with leading authors. Today, I interviewed Barry Gouin, author of the new book, The Inevitability of Tragedy, Henry Kissinger and His World, which came out April 28, 2020. We did the interview as a Zoom webinar for the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth on June 9th. Enjoy.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Thank you so much for being with us. In fact, I think this is a much more pleasant way to spend an afternoon since I think it's about over 100 degrees here in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation with Barry Gouin, and it'll be moderated by our good friend Talmadge Boston. Let me thank all of the program sponsors, uh, particularly Talmadge Boston's uh, law firm, which is Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley and Norton. The Shackelford Law has been a very dedicated supporter of the World Affairs Council for a number of years. And we're very grateful to uh, John Shackelford and all of the attorneys at at that good firm. I think many of you are well familiar, of course, with the platform. If you'd like to ask a question during today's broadcast, just uh, write out your question and Talmadge Boston will be sure to work as many of them as possible into the conversation. Let me highlight two programs that are coming up that I hope that you won't want to miss. Uh, This coming Friday on June 12th at 4 p.m., you'll have the opportunity to talk with Clifford Krause. He's the energy correspondent for The New York Times. And I was just looking in the price of West Texas Intermediate. I think now is back in the mid-30s. So as we all know, uh, oil has been extremely volatile, and to have the opportunity to speak with Clifford Krause about fracking and all of the issues pertaining to the oil industry right now will be very, very interesting. And then I want to tell you about a program that's taking place as well. Next Thursday, June 18th at 4 p.m., we'll be having a conversation with Secretary Robert Gates, And as you know, he has been an advisor and held high-level positions with so many administrations. He's got a new book that's coming out on June 16th, just two days before we have the chance to talk with him. The book's title is Exercise of Power, Americans' Failures, Successes, and a New Path Mm -hmm. Forward uh, in the uh, Post-Cold War World. I just started the book. And it's really remarkable about how he has chapters on Afghanistan, Iraq, Colombia, and without any hesitation, he says what he advised when it was right, when it wasn't, and really is one of the most candid books about post-war, post-Cold War diplomacy that I have, have read. So I know you'll be looking forward to having your conversation with Robert Gates. And now let me turn it over to Talmadge Boston. But before I do that, let me tell you a little bit about, Talmadge Boston, who just rotated off the board of the World Affairs Council. He is an author. Nobody knows more about baseball as well than Talmadge Boston. And he's a civil trial lawyer, as I mentioned, with the firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. And I'm happy to say that the first time that he met uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger was when he had truly a privilege of uh, interviewing uh, with great skill, Henry Kissinger. So uh, Talmadge, I look forward to sitting back and listening to your conversation with Barry Gouin.
0: Thank you, Jim. Uh, People who are on this webinar, uh, to introduce you to Barry Gouin a little bit. uh, For the last 30 years, he's been uh, an editor at the New York Times Book Review. Uh, He's also written uh, prolifically on politics and international affairs for the New York Times, The New Republic and many other publications. Uh, amazingly, with all the the writing he's done, uh, this wonderful new book uh, is his first book. And it's gotten a lot of media attention, deservedly so. And the endorsements on the dust jacket come from the likes of Walter Isaacson, David Petraeus, Douglas Brinkley, and Sean Wilentz. So, uh, Barry, let me start off by just saying uh, congratulations on uh, a first book that is really uh, making quite uh, an impact among people who love uh, international affairs. So with that as the introduction, let's, let's go to the questions. Uh, Barry, in, in your prologue, uh, you set up the contrast between Henry Kissinger and Condoleezza Rice. how the experience of their formative years, Kissinger growing up as a Jew in what became Nazi Germany and Rice as an African-American in the segregated South, presumably inspired their perspectives on American foreign policy, with Kissinger becoming a pessimistic realist and Rice an optimistic idealist. So is one of your book's purposes to remind readers that American diplomats are real people whose foreign policy perspectives are naturally shaped by their life experiences?
2: I think it's... um one can say it's inevitable that any diplomat, any individual, will have um, his or her views shaped by their life experiences. Um, But I do want to add, uh, I I think the contrast between the two of them is strong, and I I do believe that it, it derives in large measure from their experiences growing up. But I do want to add that Kissinger has always been reluctant to um, have his biographers and other commentators look at his childhood for answers to why he has the perspective he does. And I think that's perfectly understandable. One doesn't want to reduce um, Kissinger's Uh, views of the world simply to the traumatic experience of the Nazis. That played a part in forming him, informing who he is. But I think we have to look at his ideas on their own and not simply reduce them to his childhood.
0: Well, you also say in your prologue that, that Henry Kissinger has much to offer today. I think that's one of the many reasons your book has had the impact it's had. Uh, as a guiding light foreign policy thinker, but only if we know where to look, and your book tells readers where to look. So besides looking at Kissinger's upbringing in Germany, and then in the United States, you also believe we should look at the world affairs thinkers who shaped him, in particular Leo Strauss, Anna Arendt, and Hans Morgenthau. In fact, you devote one third of your book to these three political theorists who impacted Kissinger. So what was the cumulative impact of the three of them on how Kissinger has viewed international affairs?
2: Um, Let let me say that um, the impact is direct only in the case of one of them, and that's Hans Morgenthau. And I would say um, one, I think, cannot overemphasize the impact of Morgenthau on Kissinger's thinking. Uh, there was no thinker that Kissinger admired more than Morgenthau, who really became a mentor. He was, if I remember, 19 years older than Kissinger. But they, when Morgenthau was lecturing at Harvard as a guest lecturer, He spotted Kissinger, who was the brightest student in his class. They became friends, and their relationship went through many, many um, trends. Um, So Morgenthau, as I say, um, is thinker more, more problematic in terms of their influence on Kissinger. I would say it's not so much an influence as such as a kind of family resemblance. What all of these German Jews had in common, and and this is a point that I really think uh, has to be stressed, is that they were in some sense conservatives. They were in some sense, and maybe this is less so in Aaron's case, nationalists. But of course, once the Nazis came to power, their conservatism, their nationalism had to be called into question. So what was left for them? None of, none of them was a Marxist. None of them was a Zionist, even though they all uh, admired Israel, defended Israel, but they not, none of them chose to live in Israel. Um, there, there were always tensions in that regard. And here, and I think the most important point for American readers is that none of them was a liberal Democrat. And I'm using liberal in the broadest sense there, not as a partisan description, but in terms of a broad philosophical idea about how government worked. And the reason they were not liberal Democrats is that they saw what democracy had produced in Weimar, Germany. And what it had produced was the most successful small-D democratic politician in Weimar Germany, and his name was Adolf Hitler. So they always were skeptical, always had doubts about um, the virtues of democracy. When it worked well, it was wonderful, but it did not always work well. And so what I try to stress with Strauss and Aaron is not so much a direct influence, but a kind of family relationship. If you look at their ideas, if you look at uh, their views on democracy in the world, you can see a lot of what Kissinger also thought, even though there was not a direct one-to-one impact. The same was not true of Morgenthau. There, the connection was much more direct.
0: Well, now chapter one of your book is devoted to Henry Kissinger's views on Chile during communist leader Salvador Allende's three year reign in the early 1970s. Kissinger wanted Allende out, even though he'd been elected in a democratic election because Kissinger did not want another Cuba in the Western hemisphere. So a half century later, knowing what you know about what was going on in the early 1970s, do you personally have a problem with Henry Kissinger's attitude toward Allende's Chile as he sought to maintain order and stability in our side of the world?
2: I personally do not. I I personally do not. Um, There's considerable discussion and controversy about what the U.S. did in Chile. And if you want, I can go into that. devote a lengthy chapter to that because there's a mythology that has grown up around the US actions in Chile that I try to dispel. Um, But in any case, the reason that I focus on Chile and begin with Chile is that I think it is the classic example of what can happen when there's a conflict between a country's free and democratic elections and the threat that the outcome of those elections might pose to American national security. A more current example of this was when the Muslim Brotherhood was elected in Egypt. And that, I would say, was also a threat to American national security. So the point of the Chile chapter is to examine what the US should do if, Someone comes to power democratically, who is in some way a threat to American security. That's the question that, that Allende and Chile posed. And that's a question, frankly, that's never going to go away. There will probably be more examples of this. Does this mean we should rush in and overthrow that particular government? No, we should examine each case separately. But in the case of Chile, I agree with Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon that Allende did pose a threat.
0: Now, one of the challenges in analyzing Kissinger for any historian is that although he's been interviewed many times and he's written many books, what he said and what he's written is not always 100% accurate. He's a man of many faces, So how hard was it for you to sort through Kissinger's spoken and written words and discern which were truthful and which were wishful thinking, reputation enhancing embellishments?
2: Um, As you know, uh, Kissinger declined to be interviewed by me. Um, I can speculate about why that was the case, um, but... I did not have a chance to sit down with him one-on-one. At the time that I was refused the interview, I was, of course, very disappointed. But when I thought about it, what I realized is that probably at most he would have given me an hour or two hours of his time. And the truth of the matter is, as you just suggested, that Kissinger embellishes. He, he's a good defense attorney and will pre- present the best case for his own point of view, which may not be what comes through, not only in his writings, but in documents, letters, and other studies of Kissinger. So I think not getting the interview was not detrimental to what I was doing. Now, in terms of your question about how one sorts through, I did it in the way that any historian or even journalist would do, which is to look at different documents, to compare uh, what the documents have to say, what Kissinger has to say, what other players have to say. Let me take one example, and it's an important example. I conclude that Kissinger and Nixon's strategy in Vietnam was to find a decent interview for American withdrawal. And a decent interview could very well have meant sewing out our South Vietnamese allies. Now that's not something that Kissinger is ever going to concede. And in fact, he, he's um, com- contradicted that. He's, he's, he's uh, tried to refute that view, that he wasn't pursuing a decent interview. But from my reading of the various texts and the various comments, I conclude that they were in fact looking for a decent interview, interval, even if that meant the downfall of the South Vietnamese government.
0: Now your book uh, repeatedly uh, depicts Kissinger's thorough knowledge of world history and how he's used it to guide his thinking in real time in the present on what's happening and what's likely to happen in the future. So did the unsound thinking that led to bad decisions by President Truman in Korea, Kennedy and Johnson in Vietnam, and Bush 43 in Iraq arise, at least in part, from their lacking the deep knowledge of world history that Henry Kissinger has?
2: I think the answer has to be yes. Let's stay with Vietnam. I I don't really have much to say about Kissinger's views on Korea or on Harry Truman, but um, uh, what I would say about Vietnam is that Kissinger, and here he is sharply contrasted with Hans Morgenthau, Kissinger in public always supported the Vietnam War, leading up to the time that he became National Security Advisor. Um, Morgenthau was the great opponent of the Vietnam War. Uh, One of the remarkable aspects of their friendship is that it somehow survived this enormous gap in their their views. And yet, uh, Kissinger's view was not so different from Morgenthau's on this. Um, He believed that getting into Vietnam was a disaster. And he wouldn't say it in public, but he did say it in private. And his students know how, knew how he felt about this. But um, he was very critical of uh, what the U.S. Um, had chosen to do in Vietnam. And in terms of his own perspective, which is a realist or realpolitik perspective, he felt it was a wasteful expenditure of American resources, blood, and money. And the, the effort he made was to find a way out of Vietnam. Well, you
0: devote one of your book's seven chapters to Vietnam and as National Security Advisor and then Secretary of State under President Nixon, Kissinger took on the challenge of attempting to fulfill Nixon's campaign promise, which was to withdraw America's military from Vietnam while attempting to achieve a peace with honor. So was that goal truly a Don Quixote impossible dream?
2: Um. <laughs> I think one can say it was up to a point. Um, What was the alternative to trying to achieve peace with honor? If the alternative was an immediate withdrawal, that was not only unacceptable to Kissinger and Nixon, but also profoundly unrealistic. In the comments that have been made about my book, um, the critics have uh, generally gone after my arguments about Chile and Vietnam. And uh, with the case of Vietnam, the argument is when Nixon and Kissinger took office, they should have simply announced a withdrawal and that would have been it. Uh, And that would have saved 20,000 American lives and countless Vietnamese lives. But there was a problem with this. You couldn't, in any uh, realistic Uh, perspective, you couldn't simply withdraw. And I give many reasons why that was not the case. And let me just give um, one actually minor reason, but crucial reason, why a simple withdrawal wasn't possible. There were hundreds of American POWs in North Vietnam, and it would have been impossible for any American president even President McGovern, to withdraw without getting an agreement on those POWs. And an agreement means an agreement between two sides, the U.S. and the North Vietnamese. And the North Vietnamese were not willing to talk about those POWs For at least a year, and I think it's not until 1971 that they were willing to make concessions on the POWs. That's only one small example of why an immediate withdrawal was simply not a possibility. It had to be a negotiated withdrawal. And for negotiations, you need two sides. And for a long time, you had only one side, the United States. The North Vietnamese continued to press for a victory, and as long as that was the case, it was almost impossible to arrive at any negotiated um, settlement. Let me add that there's a parallel here in our modern world to the Taliban in Afghanistan, what are we supposed to do in Afghanistan? Do we simply withdraw and leave our allies there to the mercies of the Taliban? If the Taliban are not willing to to reach some sort of settlement, then we're we're stuck and we have to make a choice. Um, The the, um, issues aren't as great as they were in Vietnam, where hundreds of American soldiers were being killed every week, but the intellectual structure is the same. You need a negotiating partner to be able to negotiate.
0: So having said that, uh, Barry, if you had been in Henry Kissinger's shoes during the Nixon presidency, operating in real time then, and believing that the immediate withdrawal of American forces would have been disastrous to America's stature in the world, and without the benefit of hindsight, what would you have done differently? Is there anything you would have done differently than what Kissinger did during Nixon's first term? Um,
2: I tell uh, friends and people with whom I discuss the book that amazingly, after all of my work in investigating the Vietnam War and the Nixon-Kissinger role in the Vietnam War, I end up being agnostic. And by that, I mean, I don't know. I want to believe that we could have withdrawn faster than we did. I don't know if that's the case. Um, and so I have to admit to a certain humility here. What I do think was a mistake, what I do think I would have opposed if um, the sub- if I had been there and the subject had come up, was um, the bombing and invasion of Cambodia. Now, why would I have opposed that? Not because there wasn't a legitimate reason to do that. By allowing the North Vietnamese a sanctuary in in Cambodia, we were putting our own troops at risk. The problem, however, was you couldn't look at it simply militarily, you had it politically. And by expanding the war into Cambodia, as we know, And as I think Nixon and Kissinger should have known, they were going to create even more uh, civil dissent at home Um, Many people had said that the US was practically on the verge of a civil war because of what we were doing in Vietnam. And I think for political reasons, not military reasons, it was a mistake to expand the war into Cambodia. And if I had been around then, I think I would have been like one of those other advisors to Kissinger who heatedly opposed that expansion. And in some cases, they resigned over it. So I I will say that on particular steps that were taken, I might have differed. And I might have hoped that we could have found a way out somewhat faster than we did. But if the choice was immediate withdrawal and negotiated settlement, I was firmly on the side of negotiated settlement.
0: Now, we have a great uh, question from uh, somebody who's in our audience. Uh, We've talked about, uh, previously, about Kissinger's knowledge of of history, but the question is, why is it that Americans never count international knowledge of other cultures through travel or experience when electing our president? For instance, John Kerry's fluent French was never used as an election uh, plus.
2: One of Kissinger's uh, books, I think it came out in the year 2000, was Does the United States Need a Foreign Policy? And the, the answer to the question, I think, goes deep into the nature of the American character. Um, going back to the founding and up to practically the present, we, we were um, essentially a country without immediate enemies. Uh, We had two vast oceans to protect us from the troubles in Asia, the troubles in uh, Europe. We had um, weak or benign neighbors in Mexico and Canada who were not going to pose any threat. We lived in an almost idyllic world, a world that almost no other country, maybe some Pacific Island somewhere, um, uh, shared such conditions. um, No other country shared such conditions. That all changed and you can decide which particular date that all changed, but it clearly changed in the 20th century. There is no choice now, but for us to be involved in the world and our debates have to be how we get involved. But I think for too many Americans, there's still that visceral sense that if only we withdrew from the world, we'll let the world go to hell and we'll solve our own problems and we won't have to worry about anything else. That's, I think, deep in our national character and it's something we're just going to have to learn to get over.
0: Now, during his five and a half years of serving under President Nixon, Uh, Henry Kissinger's conversations with his boss, for the most part, were taped. So we have hard evidence of Kissinger's totally sucking up as a seducer to Nixon and also his having to withstand Nixon's frequent anti-Semitic remarks. And that leads to the question that you raise in your book, what price should someone be willing to pay in order to be close to power? So are you satisfied with Kissinger's answer to that question?
2: In Kissinger's yes. case, I, uh, let me say that this was a point that both Kissinger and his mentor, Morkenthal wrote about, and they both... Uh, created the division. Is it better to be inside shaping power or outside criticizing power? And in both cases, they would have preferred to be inside shaping power. Uh, In Morgenthau's case, that proved to be impossible once he became such a vocal opponent of the war in Vietnam, Kissinger was much shrewder. Some would say he was simply being opportunistic, but his friend Morgenthau never viewed him that way, except to say opportunism is always a part of any uh, public figure, uh, but that wasn't the key to Kissinger's remaining making the choice to remain in power. What I would say is that whenever it was a matter of personal um, outrage or peak when Nixon would make anti-Semitic remarks to a man who had lost many members of his family to the Holocaust. Um, Kissinger swallowed hard and stayed. Um, He stayed because he thought it was more important to um, have his input on the conduct of foreign policy than simply to leave in in outrage. but when the questions that came up were questions of policy, at those points, he would threaten to resign. Um, and he did not, as we all know. But, but he, he would make the threat repeatedly. I'd like to draw a modern analogy, because it's one that I've discussed many times with friends. And that is, should Jim Mattis have resigned um, from the Trump administration? And, My view was, and I would say it was Kissinger's view, my view was, no, he should have swallowed hard and stayed because as was famously said about him, he was the adult in the room. Now, I can say that from the comfort of my apartment sitting here talking to you. It's much different if you're Jim Mattis and having to endure the frustrations and humiliations that he had to endure. So I have to say that this is where the contingency of history enters in. We cannot say with certainty that a man should stay in office simply in order to um, benefit the nation. Sometimes the uh, issues become so unendurable that he has no choice but to leave. And that can't be determined in any formulaic way. That's simply a matter of personality and values and, and um, experience. Now, in Kissinger's case, he stayed. In Mattis's case, he left. And I have to say, I'm on the side of Kissinger here. Another
0: one of our participants in the audience has asked a question I probably should have opened this session with, and that is for you to explain your title, The Inevitability of Tragedy. Uh, Where did you get that title? How does that tie into the comprehensive theme of your book?
2: Um, The title comes from Kissinger himself, and I indicate that in an epigraph at the beginning of the book. And it has to do with the sense, again, of all of these German Jewish intellectuals, they had a profound sense of tragedy. They they had uh, lost family members to the murderers of the Holocaust. They had been exiled from their native land, thrust out unwillingly, and they could not believe that history was simply a matter of progress for them for kissinger certainly it was more like one damned thing after another and what you had to do was 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 channel and steer and adapt and and maneuver in terms of the vicissitudes of history and as you mentioned i contrast Kissinger with Condoleezza Rice, her own experience led her to the view that the arc of history always bends toward justice, because she had risen from this position of of segregation to the very pinnacle of American officialdom. Um, In Kissinger's case, uh, his view was much darker. Uh, He understood that there were tragedies that were irredeemable, that simply occurred and you had to accept that that was part of what history was about. And so the inevitability of tragedy is the view that there's no escaping tragedy. There's always going to be the possibility of tragedy in what you do, and especially since statesmen are operating without full knowledge, operating in the dark, lives will be lost sometimes for mistakes. Well, along
0: those lines, uh, Henry Kissinger was not a government insider when Presidents Reagan and Bush 41 brought an end to the Cold War, the most defining moment of which was the fall of the Berlin Wall. So did the fall of the wall result in America's recommitting to Woodrow Wilson's idealism that our foreign policy should be aimed at making the world safe for democracy,
2: I would say that that's a strain of American thinking that never goes away. We can talk about Reagan and Bush and the fall of the wall, but if you go back to Jimmy Carter, he too was pressing for universal human rights and an expansion of democracy around the world. He too was a Wilsonian, Wilsonianism, which in some ways is the opposite of what the realists like Kissinger and Morgenthau believe, Wilsonian, Wilsonianism was uh, for them an enemy that had to be fought. Um, One couldn't simply go around the world trying to impose one's own ideals on a recalcitrant reality. One had to take into account the realities of power and the configurations of power. And so I would say, no, it wasn't that Reagan and Bush brought about a revival of Wilsonianism. It was that Wilsonianism never went away.
0: Well, regarding President Reagan, who famously uh, was adamant about not wanting Henry Kissinger to be his Secretary of State as Gerald Ford had wanted, but you say that once Reagan became president, he actually reasserted Nixon Ford strategies, which were in fact Kissinger strategies, although he expressed them, uh, you say, clothed in Wilson's rhetoric, that Reagan's East West dialogue was actually like detente that his actions were softer than his rhetoric. So in terms of trying to understand why uh, Reagan in fact acted differently than what he had said in his campaign, uh, isn't a large part of that because Reagan's most influential advisor throughout his presidency was James Baker, who had a very pragmatic approach to foreign policy that
2: was much like Kissinger's. I I don't know about the inner workings of the Reagan administration to know what the influence was. We can point to James Baker, but we can also point to George Shultz. And both of those men were pragmatic and often pragmatic in a way that Reagan was not. If you remember the famous summit with Gorbachev, Reagan was all set to try to uh, abolish nuclear weapons and his advisors had a fit and had to pull him out of that. I mean, to that degree, Reagan was very much a Wilsonian idealist. But as Kissinger says in his books on foreign policy, Reagan was, for all of his idealism, a pragmatic, reasonable man who would not push too far and had a a tremendous instinct for what the limits were. Um, So, Kissinger says, that when Reagan was running for president, he savaged Kissinger. And that's Kissinger's word, Savaged him. And that's true. And when uh, his supporters at various points said, are you going to bring uh, Kissinger into your administration? He was adamant in denying that that would ever be the case. So he did draw this um, chasm between himself and Kissinger. And yet for all of that, what Kissinger saw when, once Reagan was in power was a much more pragmatic statesman than he had led on. And Kissinger had an enormous admiration for what others might see as hypocrisy, because Reagan was able to accomplish things that he could only do if he presented himself as a Wilsonian. Now, what Kissinger goes on to say is that the Reagan years uh, don't offer us lessons for the future for a whole variety of reasons, that they were rather an admirable sunset to um, American foreign policy at that time. And so Kissinger is critical of the people who feel that they donned the Reagan cloak and and are continuing his policies. And the people in particular that he's critical of in that regard are the neoconservatives.
0: Well, I'm going to give a quick commercial for a program the World Affairs Council is going to have in the fall. Peter Baker, who's the White House correspondent for The New York Times and his wife Susan Glasser, uh, have completed uh, a biography of James Baker that was done with uh, Baker's full cooperation. And I think it really is going to open a lot of uh, people's eyes to the impact that that Baker had on the way uh, Reagan went about uh, the presidency. Uh, but we have talked about, uh, the impact of, uh, I mean, Kissinger was a Jew, he, he uh, grew up in Nazi Germany, with all, he had to deal with Nixon's anti-Semitism, and obviously a key part of American foreign policy is always going to involve our relationship with Israel. So another uh, audience member would ask you to describe the relationship between Kissinger and Golda Meir on the issues that involved Israel uh, during the Nixon and Ford presidency?
2: I have to say that this is not an area that I'm especially knowledgeable in. Let me, let me just say this about the book. The book is not a full-scale biography. You weren't, you won't learn all of the facts of, uh, Kissinger's life from my book. It's an intellectual portrait. What I'm trying to do in the book is to understand his way of thinking, how it applies to our modern world and why I consider it so valuable as we move forward. So on the particular, I can talk to you about Chile because that was important for the reasons I expressed and Vietnam because it had such a profound impact on um, American history and American foreign policy down to the present. But when we get into the um, ins and outs of um, s- specific issues, and Israel is one of those, I'm, um, I have to confess a certain, um, um, if not ignorance, at least limit. Uh, what I would say is that this was an area where um, Kissinger and Morgenthau disagreed. Morgenthau was a much more vociferous um, supporter of Israel than Kissinger was, though that's not to say that Kissinger was not a profound supporter of Israel. It really had to do with the kinds of policies that um, Kissinger and Morgenthau uh, advocated. And in Morgenthau's case, he criticized Kissinger uh, for what he thought was weakening Israel. And Kissinger, of course, uh, responded and, and, and said that simply was not the case. But when we come to the particular policies that Kissinger pursued toward Israel and the Middle East, I have to uh, beg off because I don't know enough.
0: Okay. Well, I, you understand I'm, I've got to be responsive to the audience question. I've read your book. I, I knew that there was not a focus on Israel. Here's another question that I do think you, you, you go into, particularly in talking about uh, Vietnam. But uh, if we were going to play the old TV game Password, uh, if somebody said Kissinger, uh, the response might be China. So uh, talk about uh, Kissinger's impact on the relationship between the United States and China since he and Nixon uh, got it all started?
2: Um, It's hard to overemphasize what the opening to China meant. At the time, it was pure realpolitik which is to say that Nixon may have been the first to propose an opening to China. Um, there's an argument that that's the case. But he and Kissinger saw eye to eye on this. And of course, Kissinger was the man who was sent to, to negotiate that opening. Um, you couldn't have China on the outside and be um, opposing the Soviet Union. It was almost like... Um, going into battle with one hand tied behind your back. The the aim of Kissinger and Nixon was to uh, bring China into the conversation to uh, play one off against the other to maintain closer relations to each of them than either of them had with the other. And that was, I think, an enormous success. I mean, conditions... now changed, and we can talk about that if you want. But at the time that Kissinger and Nixon were pursuing their China policy, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Even though there were conservative critics, and these critics one might label as Wilsonians, conservative critics who said we should not negotiate with a regime that has killed millions of its own citizens. The Kissinger-Realpolitik response to that would be, we cannot stop China from killing its own citizens, but we have to think of the international arena. We have to think of American national security and American interests. And American interests is for us to play China and Russia off against each other.
0: Well, along those lines, in the last few pages of your book, you set out a list of Henry Kissinger's guiding principles as quote, a series of oppositions. For example, employ power for limited ends rather than absolute ends, incrementalism rather than perfectionism, continuity rather than upheaval, and so on. What was your process for compiling this list?
2: Um, I just sat down it was the end of the book it was the end of my thinking about Kissinger and the point that I was trying to make and I'm sure you appreciate is that Kissinger is viewed simply uh, very often as amoral if not immoral and that realpolitik is viewed as immoral as those critics of the Kissinger-Nixon-China policy viewed any opening to China as immoral And what I was trying to do at the end of the book was to set out my view that, in fact, Kissinger is a moral individual, but his moralism is not easily categorizable or easily put down into paper. Kissinger has always uh, avoided trying to set out moral principles because it's so difficult to do. What I'll say in a very broad stroke, and this is, as you know, in the book, is that all of these German Jewish intellectuals, Kissinger, Morgenthau, Arendt, Strauss, uh, were Nietzscheans. That is to say, they did not believe that there was a moral code, whether handed down uh, through um, the Ten Commandments, or by the word of God, or by human nature, or by any other foundation that you might look to for a moral code, that morality was not something that could be imposed on the very various and unpredictable reality and life that we all live in. Morality had to come from the individual through all of these Uh, small one-on-one relationships to people and nations and cultures and was not uh, something to be imposed from above. And that's something they all shared.
0: Well, do you regard his principles as you've outlined them, uh, this series of oppositions based upon history, based upon his own uh, personal uh, international philosophy, so forth, do you regard these principles as timeless?
2: I do. Well, not only do I view them as timeless, I myself, when I was growing up, read gobs of Nietzsche, as, as did Leo Strauss, by the way. Um, I should mention that um, uh, Hans Morgenthau, was once asked to name the 10 books that most influenced him, or at least that he would recommend to his readers as books that they should have under their belts. And he cheated a bit. And he included among the 10 books the collected works of Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, why is that? What does Nietzsche have to offer? And I think what Nietzsche has to offer, and and any of you who have read Nietzsche, I'm sure have taken away, uh, uh, have had a very profound experience from that. He destroys what he calls all idols, all ideals. And, and then the question is, if you have no ideals, what are you left with? And this is a problem of our time. For religious thinkers, that may not be an, in, an, an issue, though of course, as we know, there are very important religious thinkers Paul Tillett, for instance, who are very Nietzschean in their views. Nietzsche has had a profound impact on theology as well. But for religious thinkers who think there is a God-given set of rules that we must all adhere to, Nietzsche is a a writer who, more than any, is the one who will uh, dispel that um, among readers who are sympathetic to his views. Well,
0: since leaving uh, government service at the end of Ford's presidency, and that was obviously a long time ago, uh, Kissinger has still been called upon and given advice to every American president, at least through Barack Obama. And so uh, one of our audience members uh, has the question of what is Kissinger's ultimate legacy? And I was framing it in terms of is the fact that Kissinger has given advice to so many presidents uh, make him the most influential foreign policy advisor in American history?
2: Um, I'd be inclined to say yes, that he is the most influential foreign policy advisor in American history. If one thinks back to other um, possibilities, I don't think anyone has had either the record of longevity or the impact on foreign affairs that Kissinger has had? So my answer to that question would would be uh, yes. Now, when we come to the legacy, first of all, the the legacy of the Nixon-Kissinger years speaks for itself. I mean, whether or not you agree with the way they handled Vietnam, uh, they did find a way to withdraw from Vietnam without the humiliation of the United States, and all of the other accomplishments, I think, uh, speak for themselves. But I think the legacy goes beyond that, and that's really what the book is about, the intellectual legacy of Henry Kissinger. And what is that intellectual legacy? It is that we really have to approach the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. We have to understand both what our national interest is and what we are able to accomplish. We cannot simply go around the world thinking because we have good intentions that the result will be a good one. And I think we've learned through harsh experience that that's the case. But since I also said that Wilsonianism is always a strain in American thinking, it's probably a lesson we'll have to learn again and again. But Henry Kissinger stands there as one of the great and formidable figures to remind us that we cannot simply approach this world, this Hobbesian world of power with good intentions. Good intentions are not enough.
0: We've got a little over five minutes left, and, I, and I'm going to ask you what I think is one of the most fun parts of your book, uh, because it, it, it just shows the continuity of his thinking. And it's about his Ph.D. dissertation at Harvard, which was about his diplomatic hero, Lord Castlereagh, uh, who uh, brought a was instrumental in bringing an end to the Napoleonic Wars, And despite his having done that, he became despised in his own country so badly that he ended up committing suicide. So explain how Kissinger's diplomatic experience in Vietnam allowed him to essentially duplicate, not the suicide, but in many ways, duplicate the difficult experience that Lord Castlereagh had.
2: There's a famous... Kissinger quote when he was negotiating the withdrawal from Vietnam is, I'm trying to bring the two sides together and everyone is shouting at me. Um, The truth of the matter is that diplomats, and this comes out of Morgenthau, uh, one can use Morgenthau as a text and Kissinger as an illustration of this, that diplomats are the unsung heroes of international relations. Why are they unsung? Because it's up to diplomats to find areas of accommodation, areas of agreement, areas of compromise. And if you don't have those areas of accommodation, the the choice that's left to you is either withdrawal and humiliation or war. And so compromise is necessary, and yet, Certainly, among democracies, as both Morgenthau and Kissinger say, um, democracies are not happy with compromise. Pub- the public um, expression is very much, we must defeat our enemies uh, no matter what. Um, it's very hard to find areas of nuance in public opinion. and. Uh, Morgenthau says this is why democracies are not the best kinds of governments for the conduct of foreign policy because there will always be a push toward an unrealistic Uh, extremism. And Kissinger has repeatedly warned about this as well. Unfortunately, there's nothing we can do. I mean, if you want to say this is one of the tragedies of our existence, we live in a democracy. No one is calling for the overthrow of that. Um, But democracy brings with it certain drawbacks that we simply have to recognize.
0: Yes, we we have time for uh, one more question uh, from our audience, and you do not talk about this subject in the book, it may not be something that's within your sweet spot, but we have mentioned uh, the impact uh, of life experience on both Kissinger and Condi Rice. Uh, Are you able to talk about Madeleine Albright, who, like Kissinger, is the only other foreign-born Secretary of State who was also influenced by the collapse of of the Weimar Republic?
2: Um, Again, I I want to plead humility here. I've read Albright's most recent book. I've dipped into the earlier ones. She clearly has a view that's different from Kissinger's. Um, She has viewed the United States as the exceptional nation, the indispensable nation. And this is a view that Kissinger does not hold as a realist, he he cannot hold that. He has to think in terms of national interest and not this broad idea of indispensability. And so there's that contrast. Um, she's had, as you know, a very complicated and convoluted past where she has learned things about herself that she didn't know growing up. And so, again, I don't want to become reductionist in this, and I don't want to say that everything she believes comes out of her own upbringing and childhood. But there are, I think, serious differences between Kissinger's view of the world and Madeleine Albright's view of the world. And I won't say more than that, because then I'd be uh, getting into areas where, I, I, again, I have to plead ignorance.
1: Well, Talmadge, I can see why you were so excited to have Barry um, join us. Uh, Talmadge, as always, I appreciate your recommendations. You're usually two or three steps at least ahead of me. Barry, congratulations on the publication of your book. And again, I want to encourage our viewers to go to interabankbooks.com and be sure to put in DFW World. It's again, Talmadge, thank you. Barry, thank you. Everybody have a great evening, and we'll see you again very, very soon.
0: Barry Gouin has written an important book that's received major attention from the media on Henry Kissinger, the most influential foreign policy advisor in American history. Had Kissinger been advising Harry Truman before he got the U.S. involved in Korea and Kennedy and Johnson before they ramped up American involvement in Vietnam, those foreign policy mistakes would have likely been avoided. You can find Barry's new book wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late, great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.